You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Respond, Following the Lord of Life. In this series from the Gospel of Matthew, we learn to be grounded in the presence, promises, and power of Jesus, finding faith to follow the Lord of Life as He makes all things new again. Now hear the word of the Lord. But when the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said, No wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and replied, Any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A town or family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is casting out Satan, he is divided and fighting against himself. His own kingdom will not survive. And if I am empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcist? They cast out demons too. So they will condemn you for what you have said. But if I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. So... Uh, if you're familiar with the passage from Matthew 12, that was, uh, yeah, we'll get to that. I don't know why I turned around. I know the, the passage wasn't up there. That's my bad sound, sound man. Um, it's a weird passage, uh, and there's lots of rabbit trails that you could go down. So we'll talk about it here in a second. The, the person that is healed here is demon-possessed. They're deaf. They're blind. Uh, after this healing, Jesus talks about the unforgivable sin so I guess this is the big one that is like you're permanently out. Anybody ever lose sleep over that one? The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Where are my youth group people at, right? You heard the one youth group or you read Frank Peretti? Remember those books? <laughs> Whew! Uh, so my, there's uh, satanic powers at work, uh, the supernatural miracles of Jesus. There's a lot that can, it's worthy of interest, but there's a lot of things that could pull you down uh, these rabbit trails that could cause you to miss the primary purpose of this passage in Matthew. We're going to touch on all of the rabbit trails, but we don't want to miss the main point. So in the, most of us, when we think of spiritual forces or spiritual warfare, or the, whenever we put the S word in front of stuff, spiritual, we tend to think of it in terms of what a thing is made of. So if it's a spirit it's ephemeral, or it's like a ghost, you know, can float through walls, or you can't see it. We think that spiritual refers to what something is made of, and that's kind of true, but in the, at least as far as the Bible is concerned, the supernatural worldview of the Bible, spiritual more refers to where something is from, so the domain that it's supposed to be in. So the heavens are the spiritual realm, and that's a place It has more to do with domain, location, than it does what a thing is made of. And to this point in Matthew, we've been shown repeatedly that Jesus is Lord over every aspect of heaven, or of earth rather, whether that's bodies, uh, political systems, social structures, gender, everything he's Lord over. And the, the purpose of this passage, the big idea is to say that Jesus is Lord of the spirit realm too. He's not just king of the earth, he's the spirit king as well. So 
That is the point. I just gave you the whole sermon right there. Jesus is Lord of everything. That is the purpose of this. And we got to keep that in mind as we're navigating all of these weird things that happen, which they, they are legion in this passage. That, that was, some of you got that joke. Wasn't that funny? C plus. C plus joke. It was unscripted. So the situation is Jesus has just left a controversy around the Sabbath. Uh, around the scriptures and around the temple of God. He's gotten into it with the Pharisees. And he's concluded that by saying that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So he's pronouncing himself as Lord, as King, of ruler of all of these major institutions and aspects. Matthew 11 through 12 is, is really just a God trying to help us see Jesus is Lord of all. Everything that is a thing, Jesus is Lord over it. Uh, in 12.14, we saw that a plan was made to kill Jesus, so he goes away and he keeps healing and preaching, though in a slightly different way. So that, that's some of the context. It brings us to verse 22. It says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. So this gives us three big problems here. He's demon-possessed. That's a real problem. Uh, he was blind and he couldn't speak. Uh, and he was brought to Jesus. Uh, one of the things you'll see in these two verses about both the man and the healing is surprisingly little is said, which should give us a clue that this passage isn't as much about the healing as the controversy that comes after that. Does that make sense? Raise a hand if you need to slow down. You know, if, if the point of this was the, the healing and the man and his faith, we would get more information about the man, the healing, and his faith. We just know he's got three big problems. Demon possession, he can't hear, and he can't speak. Well, is it can he not see, or can he not speak? Can he not see because of the demon possession or a birth defect, or did something else, did he, get, did he fall down a well? You know, like, we don't know. That's not the point of it. Um, we don't know the cause. One thing that we do know is that it's real. Y'all, I got a sneeze that's like right on the tip of my nose. So if I'm making, I don't, this has never happened to me before in 10 years of preaching. I don't know what's going to happen. We'll see. <laughs> uh, I had a buddy who used to, whenever he'd get emotional when he'd cry, he said, yeah, to karate chop it. And he would start breaking out into karate moves in the middle. And that's when you knew Tori was getting emotional. He just, ha! Ah! Uh, so we don't know why any of these. We just know that they are. Uh, so to be frank, demon possession is real. It's not something we talk a lot about in our church. We don't talk about spiritual warfare a lot. And I think that's a mistake. That's an area of weakness. It's a real thing. Physical um, ailments, whether that be being born blind, being born unable to speak, any number of things. Like these are all real things, and we don't always know why they are, but we know, we know that they are. Now we get to one of the most matter-of-fact healings in all of Matthew's gospel. 22 continues into 23. He says, he healed the man so that he could both speak and see. Isn't that funny? Like... The blind man who couldn't talk, it says he healed him so he could both speak and see. You know, he's, he healed the problems. Well, I think that's funny. The crowd was amazed and asked, could it be that Jesus is the son of David? You see how we get nothing about the man or his faith. We don't get anything about how Jesus healed him, the process. There was, we don't get any sense that there was like a dramatic show of power. Just he healed him and the crowd said, could this, could this be the one? They're showing the proper response to the miracles of Jesus. This is what is supposed to happen when miracles happen. Could it be that Jesus is the Son of... Could it be that he is the promised one? So that's all we get on the healing. That's the whole thing. That's all we get about the guy, and that's all we get about the healing. Again, because that's not the point of the text. The healing isn't as much the point of the text 
as the controversy after and what it says about Jesus. So, verse 24, we get the response of the religious people. When the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. This is another, I think this passage is so funny. It's so relevant to what we do right now. Uh, they, can't, they can't argue with what's happened, right? They don't say, you know, the Pharisees weren't so sure about what happened, so they wanted to go talk with the eyewitnesses. They couldn't deny the power of Jesus anymore. It happened, and it was obvious. So when they couldn't deny the power of Jesus, they attacked the person of Jesus. It's called an ad hominem argument, or an ad hominem attack. That's where when you can't engage the idea with somebody, then you have to attack the person themselves or, or their character. And if, you have, if you're like, I don't understand what this is, I don't know what you're talking about, then you pay no attention to politics right now. And I don't, so let's just all get uncomfortable together, right? Like, I don't know if you know this, but this is a profoundly purple room. So, thanks be to God, right? Like, I'm thankful for that, but if you're like, oh man, like, and the same, this was about a month ago, in the same week, I got asked, like, who was the liberal uh, organization that was putting all this pressure on me, and then where are my conservative fascist roots coming from? And you're like, I can't win, you know? So we're prof- but listen, here's, here's what I mean. Here's when, when you can't engage somebody on it. Have you noticed we can't disagree politically anymore? Like, I would so love to have a church night where we all gather, and we get a couple representatives and do this thing that used to be called debate, where we would exchange ideas. But I'll be honest, I don't think we could handle it, you guys. I think it would blow up the church when we kind of like saw face, really, you put faces to names and who believes what. And, because here's what happens. You can't just say, I'm going to say statements that are, have been in public domain or whatever, that are actually said about politicians. You can't say things like, I disagree on her economic policies. I don't know if that's the way that I think, I don't know if that's what the government is for. Let's talk about, instead, you say, do you know she's part of a vampire baby eating cult? <laughs> oh, y'all laughing, you, some of you know who I'm talking about. That was said about a presidential candidate. You, you can't say, I'm not sure I agree with his foreign policy. You have to say, he's an anti-American who's trying to undermine the United States of America and destroy the Constitution. You can't just say, I disagree with him. You, the point is, when, when, you can't, when you can no longer engage in an idea, when you're enslaved to your own ideology, which is what the Pharisees are here, they have already planned to kill the Messiah, and they're not dumb enough to, you know, if they, you know what a, a bind it puts them in? If they're like, you know what, I think Jesus might be God, and we've got this plan to kill him. I don't know, should we do it? Should we not? Like, you can't say somebody is God while you have your plan to kill him. They've already decided he can't be Messiah, and it puts them in this bind where they have to do crazy things, like say, he's got satanic power. Once they conclude that he can't be Messiah, then they have to attack the person. They can't, they can't deny the power of the miracle that they've seen, so they have to attack Jesus himself. And Jesus has three very plain, direct responses to this. The first one, he simply says it's illogical. So in verse 25 and 26, Uh, Jesus knew their thoughts and replied, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A town or family splinted by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is casting out Satan, he's divided and fighting against himself, his own kingdom won't survive. You see what he's saying? He's like, guys, this makes no sense. This is a stupid strategy. Why would Satan use his power to overthrow himself? He's like playing the quit hitting yourself game. Remember that when you were a kid? It makes no sense. So he says it's illogical. Uh, He says it's inconsistent. This one I think is very funny. 
Uh, he says, if I'm empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too, so they will, con- so they will condemn you for what you've said. And Jesus is acknowledging he's not the only one that casts out demons. And he, he's saying, yeah, like, what about Phil? What about Phil who's in the synagogue? He cast out a demon yesterday. Was that Satan too? The guy that you pray with? The guy that dresses just like you? The guy who's, you know, your fellow co-worker? He's saying, if, if what I'm doing is by the power of Satan, then what y'all people are doing is by... It doesn't make any sense, guys. Your own buddies are going to get mad at you for saying this. And then finally, he says it's bad theology. Uh, as a side note, the inconsistent bit, yeah, uh, yeah. This is the kind of stuff that happens when you're enslaved to crazy beliefs. You just have to make irrational statements. If you've already concluded somebody is all bad, then it doesn't matter what they do or what they say. This is what, so listen, this will be my last thing about politics, I'm pretty sure. It, I'm pretty sure, because I don't like talking about politics. It's like the email guarantee. If I talk about politics, uh, and I'm, most of my life is about managing my email inbox. If you cannot receive any bad news about your guy or your girl, the person in your party, if you can't look at anything and say, that's a problem, you're a slave. If you can't look at the guy or girl on the other side who you hate, which Jesus has things to say about that, and you you can't say, well, that was a good idea. That was positive. If you can't say anything good about the people on the other side, you are a slave. And part of what that slavery looks like is you'll be forced to draw crazy conclusions whenever good news is in your face. Does that make sense? You just can't tolerate that maybe this person who's this awful baby-eating vampire, one idea was good and something good happened there. So we just draw the conclusion. You get, so they, they're doing something totally crazy. Their own team casts out demons and they say something that indicts themselves. You say crazy things when you're enslaved to an ideology or a belief that's made you know, regardless of the information or the evidence. So then finally, it's, it's bad theology. 28 and 29, if I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived through you. For who's powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Some people will take these last couple of verses and this will become like the Bible's field guide for exorcism. And, so you'll, and if you have no idea what I'm talking about, then thanks be to God that you've been spared some of the stranger parts of Christianity. But they'll be like, they'll take this verse as, here's how to bind up the strong man. Who is the strong man? How do you bind up the strong man? How do you find his name? And how do you throw him out? And like, maybe that's useful, but that's not what this passage is about. That's not what these verses, it's not a strategy for demon possession. The purpose here is for Jesus. He's saying, listen, you guys, if this were the spirit of Satan, then why is the kingdom of God breaking through? This passage is about Jesus asserting his lordship here. Because listen, if someone broke into your house, imagine you got a five-year-old kid. Someone breaks into your house. You don't shake your spouse and say, wake up the five-year-old to stop the burglar. That would be absurd, right? Because the five-year-old, in all, unless it's a four-year-old breaking into your house, the five-year-old probably isn't going to be able to turn away the burglar. Amen? Correct? What do you do? You wake dad up and dad gets a shotgun or a baseball bat or whatever you have in your home, and, or you call the police. You have to get someone more powerful to overthrow the evil that's invaded your home. That's the point that Jesus is saying. If you, it cannot be the power of Satan because Satan won't work against himself. It can't be the power of Satan because you guys do the same thing, and it can't be the power of Satan because only someone stronger 
then Satan can overthrow the works of Satan. Some of this helps us discern where the miraculous supernatural events come from. Because the rest of the Bible, Jesus himself here, he's acknowledging other people do supernatural works. Other miracles happen outside of the hands of Jesus in the Bible. So how do you know? How do you discern where these things are coming from? Are they good or, or are they bad? Uh, this went moderately well in the first service. I'm going to try it again. We're going to do a little crowd participation. Um, so Jesus says, if a miracle is empowered by the, the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived. So think about every kingdom that's ever existed in human history. What has been the one, the, the one reality that's been true of every kingdom of all time? What has been true, what's existed in every kingdom of every land of all time? The one similar theme. Anybody? A what? They fail, yeah. This thing positively. Christians love talking about bad stuff. What's been the one good thing? Who has been present in every kingdom? What kind of person? Somebody said it, a king, right? A king. You can't have a kingdom without a king. Uh, so the clearest evidence that, the, see how that didn't work so well? But you guys kind of get it, right? That for a kingdom to be present, the clearest evidence of what kingdom is present is the presence of the king. Does that make sense? If it's the kingdom of God, we would expect the presence of God to be there. What does that mean? Well, is what's happening, is that eliciting the worship of Jesus, who is the king? Is it making people love Jesus more? Is it inclining them to trust Jesus more? Is it moving people to let go of more and obey Jesus more? So in other words, the fruit of a miracle or the source of a miracle is discerned by the fruit of the miracle. If something miraculous and supernatural happens, is it moving people towards Jesus or to a platform, a person, a ministry? I just be, I'm not, I don't want to indict all of these. This is my only kind of personal thing, but just like be careful of first name, last name ministries. You know what I mean? First name, last, if I ever start jonasageministries.com, y'all just fire me, okay? Just be done with it. It's, it's, just be careful when a work, a word, an activity is moving people to trust a person or elevate a man or a woman or a brand over King Jesus. This is in part why the Pharisees get so uncomfortable because the work that Jesus does is moving people to worship Jesus or at least consider it. And there's the threat for the Pharisees. This is the first time crowds are acknowledging Jesus could be Messiah. They're responding the way Jesus intended. You look at what he said to John the Baptist's followers in chapter 11. You know, he says, if, you, if you're uncertain, go look at my words and go look at my works. This is what's happening here. They, they've seen what he's done. They've heard what he said. And they're beginning to consider that he could be the Messiah. And it is this rejection of Jesus by the Pharisees this obvious, it's clear, power has broken through, people are responding, and the Pharisees utterly pervert the values of the kingdom because they say that which is God himself is satanic. That which is good and true and beautiful and healing and redemptive, they call it evil. This is what Jesus says is absolutely intolerable. So in verse 31, he says, I tell you, 
every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. No one is 100% sure what this verse is talking about, um, and it's scary for a lot of people. Anybody got terrified of this in youth group before? I mean, lost sleep over this verse? Have I done it? Have I not done it? Uh, I would just say, like, if you're worried, have I committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? The people who commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit ain't losing one bit of sleep over whether or not they've committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So I'd just be a little bit careful about anyone who says exactly what it is. I do think we can get a good idea of it. Um, so one thing that's interesting, he says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. There's a degree of uncertainty or accusation that Jesus seems to be able to tolerate about himself. He says so in the very next verse, which we're not going to go over, but it's in your Bible, verse 32. You can see what he says. You can think of Peter, for instance, in chapter 26. Like, you can go take a look at that. Or John, again, in Matthew chapter 11, he expresses some doubt. Like, there's a degree of uncertainty, um, I don't know, doubt that Jesus is willing to tolerate regards to himself, but to see the work of the Spirit so plainly and call it evil, attributing the gracious, restoring work of God's Spirit to Satan, Jesus says that is beyond forgiveness. Maybe to try to put it a little bit more simply, the one sin that will remain unforgiven is to see clearly the works of God, and not simply to say no, but also to say that's evil. One thing the scriptures are really clear about is that one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I, I think what he's saying is that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is when we see Jesus on the throne and he says, do you want to come to my dinner party? And, the, and we say, whose throne are you on? Look at Satan up there. I don't want anything to do with you. You know, it's a blatant rejection of that, which is obvious. And like, think about some of the stories. Who are the people that don't go to the great banquet feast? We're, we'll look at the parables pretty soon. Jesus invites all these people to come to this fancy wedding dinner. And you know who doesn't come? He doesn't say, hey, you guys over here, I'm not, you're not invited. I'm sorry. If you got this color hair, you're not invited. It's the people who got the invitation and said, no, I don't want to come. Those are the people who didn't go to the party. So maybe uh, the simplest way to put it is the sin that remains unforgiven is the sin for which forgiveness is refused. Does that make sense? Who doesn't come to the party of God? The people who say, I'd rather not. Which, you know, if the essence of the sin is to look at the obvious revelation of God and say, you are not king, you are Satan, maybe the most obvious next step or invitation for us is to consider the lordship of Jesus. There, you can go back and look at all of these stories pretty much since chapter 8. There is no aspect of our humanity, gender, social status, economic status, physical condition. Like there, there's just no aspect of the human condition where Jesus is not Lord. And now we see his interactions with the spirit realm. And he's like, you know what, that, other, that whole other realm too, all the stuff that you can see, I'm king of that too. Jesus is king because Jesus is God. So that's perhaps the most fundamental invitation. Have you acknowledged Jesus is Lord? The Pharisees rejected the obvious. And I, listen, I get life is hard. Have you ever, I don't know, if you're talking to one of the pastors and you're like, why do their faces look that way? Uh, it's because life is hard for everybody and typically one of us is involved in 
the difficulty. And it's, like, it's really sad and really hard a lot of the time. So when, when life is hard and difficult, you can kind of get tunnel vision, or you can only look at your own story, and you can lose sight and feel like God's abandoned you. And we're fortunate to be in a church where obvious works of God happen kind of regularly, like regularly enough that we could get used to it. Uh, and one of those was last week. A young lady got baptized, a young lady named Destiny. And it's like, it's just, I just, like, I get chills, and it makes my heart hurt thinking about the, the things this brave young lady shared. And so I just want to point out a couple of things that she shared in her testimony. If you've never been here before or have never seen one of our baptism services, we have people share some of their, their testimony, their story of how they came to faith. Someone reads it for them, and then they're baptized. It's, it's really beautiful. There's just a couple of things that I want to point out that she said. So she said, one day that really changed my life and brought me to faith would be watching my sister's baptism here at Sojourn Church. I saw community. I saw love. I saw friendship. I saw faith. And most importantly, I felt something that resembled home that I had never felt before. This comes in the context of her saying she was angry with God, a life filled with conflict and abuse. Uh, And you see how ordinary this is? You know that she wasn't like, oh, this amazing sermon got preached, and uh, I passed out and started shaking, and I had a vision, and then this, you know, it's like, no, what happened? Well, my sister got saved, and I heard my sister's story. She invited me to church. People were friendly to me. People were friendly to me, and for the first time in my life, I felt like I was home. She said she wrestled with unforgiveness towards an abuser in her life, and something shifted. She she began to extend forgiveness as best she could. She felt her heart softening. And listen to how she ended her story. She said, I felt like I was undeserving of being baptized because I wasn't good enough. I wasn't perfect. I'm thankful to have now realized that I'm absolutely worth it and love, no matter how imperfect I am, no matter how many times I fall, I know that I can get back up with God's help. This is why I can now declare Jesus is Lord. See what an amazing shift that is, especially from someone who's gone through some of the worst stuff life has to offer. She was hurt, and she became more gracious. She felt unlovable. Can you just feel the pain in that? I I wanted to get baptized, but didn't, because I didn't think I was worthy of it. But now I feel lovable and cherished. Why? Not because she's finally perfected her life and is going to do it great. No, because Jesus is Lord. And he will welcome me home every time. Really the only reason that I want to share that, those bits of that story for you is to remind you that God is still saving people. He's still healing and he's setting captives free. If you look worldwide, there has never been a time of greater revival of greater conversion and discipleship in the church than where we're living, when we're living right now. There's no, been no greater number of people getting saved. And sometimes it's like, oh, let's get our strategies going. And like the revivals that are breaking out in the Muslim parts of the world, anybody have a guess of what like the number one reported uh, means of conversion is in the Middle East right now? Dreams. We have people from our church that someone comes up to them on a mountain and says, I had a dream uh, where Jesus came to me 
And he said, a white man was going to come and tell me everything I needed to know about life. You're white. Never seen a white person before. Like, and here we are in America, and I'm not trying to downplay the difficulties of our lives. We can just lose sight of what's happening. It costs us so little to go to church here. It costs us so little to follow Jesus. And there's parts of the world where, and all I want you, I'm way off my purpose of my sermon here. I just want to remind you that Jesus is still at work. He's still saving people. He's still healing people. He's still setting people free. So have you confessed Jesus as Lord? And if you have, here's a weird phrase I want you to stick with. I would encourage you to test the spirits in your life. Uh, how do I know if it's Satan's sin or just the world? I don't, I'm not really sure. And sometimes I'm not really sure if it matters or not. Here's what I mean by testing the spirits in your life. Think about those unseen realities pulling at you, like with destiny story, anger and bitterness, unforgiveness. What are these things that are just kind of draining you or, or sucking the life from you? These things that you feel pulling at you, people, places, habits. You test them by asking, is this driving me to love Jesus more? Is this thing, this place, this routine, is this causing the kingdom of God to break through? And if it's not, if that person, if that place, if that habit, then let it go and come to Jesus. Ultimately, the way we break free of those spirits, those habits, those wounds, we have to have someone stronger come in the house and throw them out. You see that? Who is the stronger person? Jesus. And maybe you need a therapist. Maybe you need to talk to the pastor. But at, at the end of the day, the person that will come and bind up the strong man in your life is Jesus. So call on the name of Jesus and give him lordship over your whole life. And that's a risky thing, I will tell you. If you let him in and give him free reign over your life, most of us would be like, oh, Jesus, I'm in this mess with my kids. Help me out with my kids. Oh, Jesus, I'm in a mess with my finances. Help me out with my finances. You know, we want to give Jesus, you know, you can play over here, but not, not, my, not my politics, Jesus. Let's not go crazy. Not my sexuality, not my money, not my, you know, whatever the thing might be. Like, to say, Jesus, come into my house, bind up the strong man and throw him out. He might rearrange the furniture. Let the reader understand. He might say the wallpaper has got to go. I'm not, it may not be an entirely pleasant process on the front end. Here's another way I'll put it. I'm sorry if this offends. Uh, if you've been doing something dumb for 20 years, so this, this kind of area of dumbness is a pattern. And what do I mean? I mean things where you're not trusting God. You're just not listening to him and his instructions. You've just been stubborn. And you've done that for 20 years. And you're like, man, I'm kind of hyped up right now. I'm going to go change. Like, a 25-minute sermon does not have the power to change 20 years of this habitual way of being. And when you start trying to do something different, it'll be painful and disorienting and foreign. But them's the breaks, y'all. Like, you can't remodel the floor plan without taking some walls down. So if you want Jesus to come in, if you give him free reign of your whole life, I promise you, it will cost you something. I promise you, it will be disorienting and confusing. But it will also produce life. It will produce freedom. It will produce joy. Psalm 16, 1, pleasures, O Lord, are at your right hand forever. The promise of obedience is, is joy. The invitation of Jesus is ultimately to a wedding feast. 
So invite him to your home. Give him free reign of your life. Call upon the name of Jesus. Submit to the Spirit King. Receive what he's done for you and follow him. That's the message of the passage. It's confusing. It's disorienting. We won't always expect the invitations and they'll feel unnatural. And so we root ourselves. It's funny how Jesus calls us to remember his ways, his paths by doing something that sounds very strange. What's the first thing we say when we talk about communion? What's the first thing we remember? Um, I, heard, I heard enough of it. On the night he was betrayed. When you remember God's cosmic plan of salvation, the first thing you need to remember, it happened on the night he was betrayed. Is that how you would do it? Like, is, that how, is that the story you would write? The whole thing is upside down. If you were a righteous king, lord of all, offended by this small creation, wouldn't you be tempted to just wipe them out and start over? But what is it? He comes near. On the night he was betrayed, he takes something incredibly ordinary. We'd see it every day. He thanks God for it, even in its simplicity and ordinariness. And he says, this is my body broken for you. Eat this bread and remember what the king has done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, uh, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood. What's, what does that mean? This is the cup that reminds you of your relationship with God that's sealed not by your religious performance, but by the blood of Jesus. Our tradition at Sojourn is uh, to come forward and rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. Uh, there'll be stations in the back, up front, and gluten-free elements to my left and your right. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, let's come remember our great hope together. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.